those who are parents um, have probably all had this experience. Um, and as our kids get older, they start to understand if they don't initially, they start to understand that some of the rules and some of the guidelines that we have are not things that we necessarily want from them as much as we want these things for them. We understand the difference, right? And so when we go to the Word and we remember that these things are for us because the, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives our soul. That's why God gives it to us. It, it makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes. And when we start to see that everything God tells us is for us. Sometimes we think he wants this from us. Or worse, we think Sean wants this from us. It's not that I want anything from you so much as I want it for you and I want it for me because God wants it for us. This morning I might give you some challenges that um, might be a little prickly. Uh, And I just ask you, receive those in the spirit in which they are given. If if. If I say something today that is not from the Lord and it's not in keeping with the word, feel free to just dismiss that. And that's my prayer. I, I do pray that, Lord, if I if I say something that that isn't, you know, in line with what your word is really saying, I just pray that it goes past everybody. But if if it's from you, then let it sink into my heart and everyone else's. Last week, we looked at several passages from seven different New Testament books. And all of these passages addressed our relationships among one another in this new community called the Ecclesia of God, the called out people. And I promised you as we looked at those scriptures that I was going to resist making comments a promise that none of you believed, but lo and behold, I did for the most part. So give myself a little pat on the back and um, you got out a little early. So this morning we're returning uh, to some of these passages and I'm going to I'm going to make three applications uh, to the church in America, generally speaking, insofar as that's possible. To the church that meets at the corner of Fairground and Fleetfoot Road in Mercer County. And then, um, and then maybe asking ourselves some questions as, as individuals. And don't expect that application to be real consistent. I mentioned last week that we need to allow God's word to be the guide for how we think about the church. It's identity. It's mission. And so if Jesus had one thing in mind for the church, then we don't really have the liberty to say, well, we have another idea. We have a better idea. Let's try this other model. Think about the, the arrogance of that, to think that we can dismiss what Jesus wanted, his vision for the church. I mean, if you, let's say you decided to throw like a 50th birthday party for your brother, and it's a surprise party. And 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 maybe your other brother um, went and invited the whole neighborhood and he turned it into a big block party and everybody was there and nobody even knew why. And they're shooting off fireworks and you're like, this is not the intention. This is not what I had in mind. This isn't honoring the, the guest of honor. You know, like, do we do that with the church? If Jesus had something in mind, do we do we go and, and change it on him? We don't have that liberty. So the church is God's idea, and we have to be ever conscious of his purposes for it. So what is God doing with the church? Well, lots of things, and we don't have time to get into all of them this morning. But one thing, one, one of Jesus' intentions for the church that he made very clear was that he wanted to leave a witness of himself for the world. 
He was very clear about this in John 13. We'll maybe touch on that a little later. He was also very clear in, in John 17 in what we call his high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed right before his death. And it says, Jesus said, may they, and he was talking about future Christians. He said, the people who believe through the, the disciples' gospel witness, may they, future Christians, be in us, Father and Son, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that? I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. So according to Jesus, the world is going to know something about himself when they watch the church relate to each other. If you and I, not by our own power, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, allow God to create in us the kind of unity among us, that exists between the Father and the Son, then that's unexplainable to the world. If we allow him to create that kind of unity, then the world will know that Jesus is the real deal and that he was sent by God and that we are his legit people. Wow. That's heavy stuff. It really is. So let me say this again. Jesus' intention with the church is to leave a witness of himself for the world. The world should look at us, not the t-shirts we wear, not the big fancy buildings or whatever. The world should look at our relationships and know something about Jesus. And so last week we noticed that the New Testament teaches in multiple places that part of that witness God wants us to be deeply devoted to one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. The world out of which we have been called should be able to observe the degree and the quality of our commitment to one another and say, you know, that, that reminds me of how brothers love them, and, and they're not natural family. What, what explains this kind of thing? They should look at how we honor one another and how we talk about one another. And they should conclude that we are more concerned about giving credit than, than receiving it, honoring one another than being honored. And, and, and they should say, you, you just don't see this kind of thing. You and I are given a charge by God. We're given a command to, to display among us a, a very rare, a very uncommon devotion to one another. It's not just something God wants from us. It's something he wants for us, for our good. 1 John 3.16 reads, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So the world out of which we've been called should see us consistently laying down our lives for one another. They should, they should look at us and say, who, who misses out on all the fun? Like, who misses out on the company party to help someone from church move in the rain? Who does that? Who gives up his Saturdays to drive someone to, to chemotherapy? I mean, this guy used to be a huge OSU fan. He's got season tickets. He hasn't even used them all year. Who does this? It doesn't make sense. What explains this? That's what the world should see in us. Something that is unexplainable apart from Jesus. And I want to say, this deep devotion, this sacrificial commitment to one another. Folks, it, it, it must be there. Jesus doesn't say, well, here's an option for you. Here's, an, here, here's a one possible model. You, you might want to try this. He says, this is my command. And so we do well, I think, to just pause and ask 
several questions. The first one is, is this what the church in America looks like? Think about that for a second. Is this what, when unbelievers think of Christians, is this what they have in mind? What do you think? Or do they see mega churches with sprawling campuses and slick, you know, celebrity pastors who take the spotlight from Jesus and put it on themselves? What does the world see? Do they see Christians who don't even bother to get to know one another? Because, you know, got to race off, the game starts at one, don't want to miss the kickoff. What do they see? Do they see Christians bickering and fighting? Do they see church hoppers and church shoppers who are always on the move, always trying to find a, you know, a better, more fulfilling personal experience? What does the world see from, church, from the church in America? That's one question. The second question is, who are we as a church, Aletheia, collectively? Is it true to say that we are a body of believers that is deeply devoted and sacrificially committed to one another? Is that who we are? And lastly, am I, as an individual member of this church family, striving toward this standard? Jesus demonstrated this example to us. Deep devotion, sacrificial commitment to me, to you. And he says, this is what I want from you for each other. Am I committed to that? Am I growing in that? The answer to that might become clearer to us as we continue with some more of these commands. So we noticed that. We also noticed that we're to strive for unity and peace with one another. Strive for unity and peace with one another. The phrase that Jesus used was complete unity. Unity like the Father and the Son have together. And notice that Jesus' standard here, folks, it's not, we don't work for the UN. We're not peacekeepers. We're peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Jesus said. Are we doing that? Is, that? is that us? Romans 14, Paul writes, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God. Make every effort. You doing that? You know, something that has always been a part of my gospel presentation. Um, <laughs> for probably a quarter century. When I share the gospel with an unbeliever, it's not just be reconciled to God. It's be reconciled to God and to his reconciled people. Become part of God's people. And so there's always this invitation to join with the people of God. That's biblical, by the way. At a certain point in the past, it was... 13 or 14 years ago, to be precise, when our church was trying to work through some things and there was no peace and there was a lot of strife, I, I, I was embarrassed by that, so embarrassed that when I shared the gospel, I did not invite people to our church. Isn't that sad? Now, you could fault me for that, maybe. But I already saw how that division was destroying the work of God among us. I didn't want it to destroy the work of God in, in an unbeliever. This is crucial. Jesus cares so much about peace and relationships that he died to make it happen. Not just our peace with God, but our peace with one another, according to the book of Ephesians. So if the job of the church is to show the world Jesus, if we have strife and division among us, we fail at that. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 5. You know about this. There's this problem. They're suing each other. Christians suing each other, taking each other to court among, in front of the pagans. And Paul said, why are you doing that? Don't ever do that. Don't, you, should, you should be willing to be wronged long before you ever sue an unbeliever. Think of your witness to the world. When the world looks at the church, do they see a peace 
and a unity that is unlike anything they've ever experienced in their neighborhood, in their extended family, in the Rotary Club, at work, wherever. Do, do they see something like that? They should. They should. That's what we're called to. By the way, I'm thankful for about 13 years now of, of peace, harmony. I pray that God protects that among us. It's not perfect. We can get better at it, I'm sure, but it's, it's good. It's a good thing. But a question for each of us individually is this. What efforts have I been making to bring about peace? So when somebody comes to me and they have a complaint about a brother and there's a little bit of gossip going on, what, what's my reaction to that? Do, do I say, hey, let's pray about this. Can I intervene? Can I help you guys to have peace together? Or do I just listen? Or worse, do I join in on that gossip? Do I make every effort to have peace? Do I obey that command? Number three, we are to serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. I know I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. The danger is that I'm going to tell it a different way. Um, The difference between me and your great-grandpa, I at least know that I'm telling the same stories over and over, right? Um, Or at least some of the times I I do. Um, I was in a waiting room, and here's this lady reading this Christian book, and, and I thought, well, let's... This is a chance to, you know, talk about something maybe we have in common. And and uh, older lady, I'm guessing she was, well, maybe not that old. Boy, I'm going to get in trouble now. Uh, she was like 100. Um, no, I don't know. She was, when I say older, I just meant older than me. That's all. She was probably in her early 60s, to be truthful. I don't know. But anyway, she... Uh, you know, I started talking to her, and we were talking about our churches. And she asked where I went. And this is back in Fort Wayne. I said, Church of the Lamb. Oh, I don't know about that one. Well, it's a little church. You know, a couple hundred people. We meet in an old building downtown. And she goes, oh, okay. And then she said, I go to such and such church. Which, and this is the church. I mean, this is a church. You, I mean, you can get a really nice coffee there on a Sunday morning. 4,000 people, five different services. And she said, I could never go to a small church. I could never do it. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, you, 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 you just have to get involved. If you're in a small church, you have to get involved. And, and me, I like to just let the young people do the work, and I sit back and enjoy the performance. And you think I'm making that up. Nope, that's what she told me. That statement took me so off guard. You ever just wish you had a do-over? Like, I know I botched it, but I was, I was just stunned. I was stunned because she wasn't even embarrassed to say that. Okay, fine, sister. If that's what the Bible says the church is, who am I to argue with God? If if the Bible says that the church is where young people use their gifts to minister to the older people who park their butts in a seat and watch the, the performance, then fine. I won't argue with God, but is that Jesus' model? What does the word say? Ephesians 4, from Christ, the whole body grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. I don't care if you're three or if you're 103, you're part of the each. Each part does its work. Peter writes, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Does this describe the church in America? Is there a heavy focus of, of, like, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, every part of the body functioning together, working together, serving together. Because God has put all this beautiful variety in this church body. And now we function as a body. Is that, is that a focus? Or do we have our pastor-driven models? talked about that back in January, where Reverend so-and-so, He's the one that gets the the spotlight. He gets the attention. His name is out there on the church sign. I told you before, you will have the fight of your life 
on your hands if you ever try to put my name on a sign. Unless you want to put everybody's name on the sign. I'll do it then. But if we've got to have 300 names on the sign. Then I'll do it. Is the church in America known for pitching in all of us where nobody's better, more important than anyone else? Is that what we're known for? I don't think we are. Does the world look at the church and see us that way? I'm tempted to answer no. I'm sure there are many exceptions. Churches that are that way, and I think we're one of them, with room to grow. But I think we're one of them. And I think we're growing in this. I want to see us grow more. Many of you are very busy using your God-given gifts to serve in the church family, to serve one another. You're doing it joyfully with the conviction that it's really you more so than the people you serve who is blessed in that. There's somebody in this church. I'm not going to name the person. It would embarrass him or her. Um, but this person, every time I give this person an assignment, he or she says to me, thank you. Thank you. I, I was so blessed that you asked me to do this job. Thank you. I appreciate this so much. And then what started out as me trying to thank them turns into this big thank you, Sean, thing, and I'm embarrassed by it. But that's a person that gets it. Thanks for letting me serve and use my gifts. So what about you? What about you? And, and, and this, is really, this is really why some people who aren't yet members need to become members need to become a member and serve. Use your gifts that God has given you. There are plenty of scriptures that confuse me. Plenty of passages in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that are confusing to me, right? Pastors are supposed to have it all figured out. Well, I've got news for you. You probably have it figured out more than I do. Lots of stuff in the Bible that I just, boy, I don't know what it's saying. This isn't one of them. This one's just so crystal clear. All over the New Testament, everybody, without exception, is supposed to be pitching in and serving. We do it in different ways. And so I'm never in a position to look at someone and say, oh, I, I bet they're not doing anything. No, they might be serving in many ways that I'm not even aware of. But that much I know. And so the question is, are you being obedient in that way. We are to offer hospitality to one another. We still need some life group homes. I know that not everyone can do that. I understand that. Not everybody's home is equipped for that. That's okay. But is that something you could do? We are to give preference to others and submit to one another. Paul writes, no one should seek his own good. But the good of others. Realize what a radical statement that is. Are you too busy thinking of others to even have time to think for, about yourself and your own needs? Oh, wait, I just watched this TikTok video and, and they were talking about the importance of prioritizing self-care and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's the spirit of the world. We listen to the spirit of Christ. Well, that just seems extreme. That really seems like a radical teaching. Well, what, what's it say? No one should seek his own good but the good of others? Boy, that's, that's just radical. Oh, yeah. You got that right. Make no mistake. Jesus' teachings are radical. They are extreme. You will not find them in Hinduism. You won't find them in Buddhism. You won't find them in Islam. This stuff about loving your neighbor. You won't, you won't find them in New Age philosophies or materialism or humanism. His teachings are radical. They are extreme. 
They are way out there on the extreme edge. Keep in mind, though, it's not just something that he taught us. It's something that he lived out for us. He gave us the example. And he said that we can follow it. Is that something he wants from us or is that something he wants for us? Do we have the faith to believe that 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 if we walk out that kind of life, that it will actually be a great blessing? That it will actually result in great joy for, for us and for our children? Do we have that kind of faith to believe this, that, that this extreme radical life of, of thinking about others before ourselves, where it's not just a theory, it's how we live together. That that will result in great joy. We are to accept one another and not show favoritism. Is that the kind of church we are? Where everybody feels welcome. Even the person who goes to school and gets picked on because they're maybe a little different or the person who gets picked on at work because they don't have the right wardrobe or they're a little socially awkward or they don't live in the right neighborhood or whatever. Are we the kind of church where someone like that can come in here and say, I've never felt more at ease in my life. I just I just fit. I'm I'm accepted. Is that us? I want to say I, I think it is. I think it is. I don't I don't see racism or classism here. I'm very thankful for that. Hope it stays that way. What about you personally? That might be a different question. What's your attitude toward brothers and sisters? Can you accept others and, and not show favoritism? And, and I'm happy to leave that between you and God. I, I have no idea how to answer that for individuals. But keep in mind, if that's something you take to the Lord, keep in mind, the reason that we live that way is because that's how Christ lived. He died for all. He loves all. Old, young, rich, poor, doesn't matter. All races, all nationalities. Male, female, he died for all, he loved all. That's why he calls us to do likewise. That's what it means to be his called out people. That's not how it is out there. That's how it should be in here. We are to forgive one another as we've been forgiven by God. Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Does anybody here owe you anything? In your mind, does anyone in this room owe you anything? And I'm not talking about money. Remember what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the releasing of a debt. It's the cancellation of a debt. It's wiping the slate clean. Sometimes there's a process involved in that, but the forgiven must be forgivers. That's what God says about the church. So is that you? Maybe you look around the room and you're like, yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, maybe it's not the person two rows ahead of you. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. Maybe it's your spouse or your mom. The forgiven forgive. I hope you can say I hold no one in debt to me when I look around this room. That's the clear command of God in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere. It's what it means to be the church. It's when Jesus thought of the church. That was his vision. I'm going to forgive these people. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to cancel the debt. I'm going to forgive their sins and put them as far as the east is from the west. And then they're going to show the world me. By treating each other the same way. That's his vision. Do we embrace that? We are to sympathize together. Um, I love these comments that I get from people uh, when they say, uh, and we've had this several times, like, you know, that a loved one dies. And they come to me and they say, my family was like, is, this, is your whole church coming? 
That's what it means to mourn with those who mourn. I think we do this well. I think we've even improved on this in recent years. I think we can improve more. But what about you? Do you sympathize with others? That's Jesus' vision for the church. And if someone says, well, that's not really my thing. I'm not really a sympathetic person. I'll leave that to others. I think we pay the pastor to do that. I think we pay the pastor to, to, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. That's just not obedient. That's all of us. We are to be generous with each other. Hebrews 13. Don't forget to do good, to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And here is where I think, honestly, I think we can probably commend the church in general in America. I think Christians are generous. I think they're known for that. doesn't mean we can't improve, but... Uh, I had friends who went to Eastern Europe, to a former Soviet bloc country, and they said that the concept of, of charity there is just absent. Like, it's not even there. Americans are generous. American Christians, I should say. They generously fund charities all over the world. They build hospitals in Jesus' name. They build and run orphanages in Jesus' name. And food banks here and abroad. That's just... Who we are. You can disagree if you want, but that's my observation. And as a local body, I want to say I think this is something we excel in. I think we are a generous church. We don't have many takers. We have a lot of givers. A lot of givers. And I love that about our church. I commend your generosity. Uh, I want to remind you of what the scriptures say. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. So keep that up. Keep that up. That is a great witness to the world. I had a friend one time, uh, doesn't belong to this church, but he's a believer. And he had somebody, I may have told this story too, but he had somebody interrogating him at work. And he's like, you Christians, like, do you like, you, you give your money away, like to the church, you give money away, right? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, how much? And, you know, he's pressing him and he's like, well, I mean, as a rule, I give about 10%, but I, you know, and. And the guy could not get over that. He's like, man, I don't know how you do it. I, I'm just barely scraping by, and you just give 10% of your money away? Why do you do that? I love God. love his people. That's a witness to the world. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. We're to clothe ourselves with humility in our relationships. This is a big one. In fact, almost all of the commands that God gives us for how we are to relate with one another depend on our commitment to walking in humility. You realize that? If you've been keeping up with the news this week, I'm sure you, it, it has not escaped your attention that the Queen of England passed away this week, Queen Elizabeth. I, I have never kept close tabs on the royal family. Um, I'm like the guy that, I don't know if you've seen the t-shirt, but it says something like stop caring about the royal family in 1776 or something like that. Um, that's me. <laughs> Not because I hate them or anything. I just, I don't know. But anyway, so this week it was kind of news to me that she was apparently outspoken about her Christian faith. And her fondness for the teachings of Christ. I didn't know that. But upon learning that, it sort of made sense. Um, kind of made sense of her humble manner. And a story emerged this week told by her personal bodyguard, Richard Griffin. Maybe you read this. He and the queen were out and about one day on the royal estate, which is open to visitors. And, and um, it must be rather large because this visitor that they encountered, they described him as a hiker. But anyway, he was a tourist, didn't say where he was from, but he happened upon them and, and he was chatting with the two of them and he was completely unaware of whom he was talking to. And so he asked the queen where she lived and, and she replied that she had a home nearby. She didn't describe it as a castle. Um, and then he proceeded to ask if she was ever fortunate enough to have met the queen. 
So she pointed to her bodyguard and she said, well, Richard here has met her and uh, actually knows her quite well. Oh, what is she like? The tourist inquired, impressed that he's now talking to someone who knows the queen. Richard replied that she has a good sense of humor. The tourist, the tourist then pulled out his camera and he handed it to Queen Elizabeth to see if she would take a picture of him with this man who knows the queen, which she was happy to do. What a refreshing story that highlights a rare humility for someone of such status. Humility is one of the highest virtues, and it's for this reason. Christ was the highest and purest example of humility. Again, almost all of the commands God gives us for how we are to relate to one another depend on our willingness to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. And we stress this a lot. You've noticed this. Why do we stress humility so much? The Bible stresses it a lot. By my count, about 30 times in the New Testament and plenty of times in the Old Testament, too. When the world looks at the church, they are drawn to Jesus to the extent that we show ourselves serious about imitating Christ's humility. That's why Peter commands, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's why Paul told the Philippian believers, you need to adopt the humble attitude of Christ, your Lord. You need to adopt that attitude toward one another. This one's a little harder for me to grasp. I I can't. uh, Humility is something I think it expresses itself in deeds, but it's really a thing of the heart. I don't know. Are we humble? I'm going to give you a little test right now, and this is just for you. You can process this um, between you and God. Seven aspects of humility. If you were to grade yourselves. Number one, your willingness to learn from others. Are you teachable? Your readiness to receive correction. Are you approachable on that level? Your readiness to admit your faults and your sins. Your eagerness to forgive a brother or sister. A refusal to judge where where you don't have the, the facts to make a judgment. Your refusal to nitpick. A slowness to be offended. A happiness to share credit and a, a refusal to seek attention, to just let the credit go to someone else. What, what kind of grade would you give yourself? We are called to be a humble community. That was Jesus's vision for us. We are to be under authority together. Hebrews 13 says this, obey your leaders and submit to their authority They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For what would that for that would be of no advantage to you. And um, and this is actually one of those things. I trust you believe me. I don't like talking about this. I don't like talking maybe for obvious reasons, but. We try not to skip parts of God's word. I'm uncomfortable talking about this subject. By the way, I'm under authority. Do you know that? Phil and Bill and Terry. If you think, oh, I bet these four guys always agree with each other. No, sometimes it's three against one. And and I have to listen to these guys, even though they're wrong. No, there are times, there really are. There are times when it's like, I want to do something one way, and they're like, no, Sean, that's not, that's not the right way. And I just, okay, my job right there is to submit. It really is. All of us are under authority. We're supposed to be. The world doesn't understand that, generally speaking. The world doesn't want to answer to anyone, only if they absolutely have to, like to keep their job or something. But they don't want to answer to anyone. We aren't the, we aren't the world. We aren't the world. We were called out of that. 
If you're a member here, you've agreed to this. You've agreed to be under spiritual authority. That's how we relate to one another. Let me address those of you who aren't members. And I can speak for the elders here. We do not assume spiritual authority over just anybody who walks in the door. We don't do that. We only have authority over those who agree to it. So if you're not a member, then the question is, where's the authority in your life? Where's the spiritual authority? It's, it's not me, not yet. And I'm, I'm not going to be so bold to go around assuming that I have authority that's not granted to me. Membership is an agreement in which you say, this is my church. I'm committed to these people. These are my elders. I put myself under their authority. And the elders agree, we will be your shepherds. And if it doesn't happen here, it should happen somewhere. You should be under authority. And, and some haven't been here very long. That's okay. We're not telling you, okay, do this now. Take the time you need, okay, but don't take more time than you need. Sometimes we, we, we never rush that. We never push it. We don't want to. I, I have actually been asked, like, um, second visit. <laughs> A visitor is, like, here for the second time. They're like, we're ready to sign up. And I'm like, well, let's wait. Let's wait at least four or five or six months, you know, get to know us because this is a matter of trust and trust takes time. Okay, so we never want to rush that. And and some of you were, were in the membership process with and some of you are probably thinking, yeah, Sean, you're supposed to call me. <laughs> so forgive me. Um, so but but if, if you're someone who's resisting authority, ah, I'm not a very good pastor. If I don't tell you, that's not a good thing. If you're resisting authority or you're avoiding it, then you don't have spiritual authority in your life. And you need to be obedient to God's word. Jesus's vision for the church is that it is orderly. And that includes spiritual authority. That's that's clear in the New Testament. So what's your attitude? And that's not just a question for non-members and visitors. It's a question for all of us. What is our attitude about authority? Do we say, oh, I guess I'll accept it? Or do we say, wow, I want it. If Jesus thinks I need it, then that's something I actually want. If Jesus thinks I need it, I know I need it. Do you know that? When the world looks at the church, do they see us as different than the world? Do they see us as joyful in our submission to authority? The next five, just going to wisdom real fast here, because they, they all have to do with our responsibility to one another as it relates to growing in Christ-likeness. So we're supposed to encourage each other to live holy lives. We're supposed to build each other up, admonish each other. Admonish kids just means to correct or to give a rebuke for the right reasons. We're to show patience, bear with one another. We're supposed to confess our sins to one another. And I think the modern church in America is not doing this well. I think we get low grades in general, and maybe that's too harsh. But I think I think that these... Five here, I think when you ask most people in America, that's just not even in their concept. Like, I think they think that's for the pastor. Pastor can do that. Pastor doesn't know everybody, especially in a church of a thousand people. These one another, each other commands, those are not intended just for pastors. Those are for all of us. And there are dozens and dozens of commands in the New Testament that highlight my responsibility to help you grow and your responsibility to help me grow and be more Christ-like. For example, Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers, brothers, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so this is Christ's vision for his church, that all of us are looking out for each other. And if I haven't seen Brother Biff in two months, 
I better get on the phone. Brother Biff, where you been? It's it's your job. It's my job. It's it's all of us. Look at this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Encourage one another daily. This is our obligation to the Lord, to each other. And this isn't just for the first century church, folks. If they needed it, do you think we need it? I need it. And if you say, well, I just, I don't do that. Okay, you don't do that. Now what? Change. Start doing it. Because it's your job. How many people have, have we seen walk away from the faith in the last three, four years? Even some in this church who've walked away from the faith. Why is that? Well, maybe some of that's my responsibility. Maybe that's all of us. Maybe, maybe we need to take another look at Hebrews 3, 12. Maybe we need to commit that one to memory and write it down and put it on the mirror. I think part of the reason that people are walking away from the, the faith is that we're not being the church that we need to be for each other. We hide from each other. We, we're afraid to confront each other. We're afraid to be confronted. We don't want people to know what we're going through. We, we just put on a happy Sunday smile and we keep everybody at arm's length and it's killing us. It's killing us. Be the church. God is calling us to something more. He sanctifies us through the word, through his spirit, and he sanctifies us through one another. And we need to be obedient. And, and if I ask you, what have you done? What, what have you done to build up, to call brothers to holiness, to, to help them walk in holiness? What have you done? Could, what three things in the last two months have you done? Would you say, oh, well, here's this person. I text them every day because I know they're struggling with sin or loneliness or whatever it might be. Or I, I check in on people or, or I was asked to teach at Fair Maidens. And what a blessing it was to encourage those young girls where I come to men's prayer because I want to I want to encourage men. I want to I want to build them up. I want to be faithful. Would you have something to say if I asked you, what have you been doing? These aren't Sean things. Folks, please, this isn't, oh, Sean has this list of stuff that I should be doing. No. What am I bringing to you that is not in the word of God this morning? This isn't the Elks Club. This is the highest institution on earth. This is the church of Jesus. We are to pray for one another. Paul writes, always keep on praying for the saints. John writes, pray for your brother. James writes, pray for each other. Are we praying for each other? And I know many of you are. We all need to be. Do we need to turn off the radio when we're in the car? Hey, I've got a 10-minute drive. I'm going to pray for three families in our church. Are we praying for each other? Are we praying for the dads in this room and the husbands to be faithful? Are we praying for the students whose faith is under assault? Are we praying for our single people that God will help them to be pure? Are we lifting each other up? Are we praying for our missionaries that we sent out? I don't know. I don't know. You know. God knows. And I've made this confession before. I'll say it again. I need to grow in this area. Uh, by God's grace, I've, I've been improving in this. Uh, but I've told you before, please ask me. Ask me, Sean, how's your prayer life? Are you, are you praying? Because if I know people are going to ask me, then it's going to help me. It's a reminder that this is my obligation before God. I want to be faithful. And I'm a, I'm a man who needs help and accountability. Pray for each other. 
We belong to each other. I'm not going to say much about that. Just that that is strong language. Jesus' vision isn't that we're a bunch of people who come together and share the same room on a Sunday morning. Jesus' vision is that we actually belong to each other. I belong to you. You belong to me. Do you think of yourself that way? And finally, this is the one that sums it all up. We are to express our love for Christ by loving one another. And we've looked at the scriptures before. We won't look at them again today. But you know Jesus is teaching on this. The way that we really love Jesus is by loving, serving, and laying down our lives for one another. That's what he asks of us. He doesn't command us to have certain feelings about him. If you do, that's great. Okay? But he doesn't, he doesn't command us to tell him, Jesus, I love you. If you do, that's great. If it's true, that's not what he commands. He commands us to obey the obligation to love the brothers and the sisters. And in so doing, love him. Here's what he said in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And get this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. William Lane Craig, in one of his books, it's not on guard, it's one of his books, at the end, you know, he's a brilliant apologist. He's got all these answers for God. He's like, his brain is like... A billion times smarter than my brain on its best day, okay? He gives all these brilliant, brilliant arguments for God. And, and, and then at the end he says, oh, by the way, the final apologetic is love. That's how you really, that's how you really tell the world that Jesus is real. You love each other. Well, he's just saying what Jesus said. So I have to ask this. If our love on display for the world to see, if that's Jesus' plan for reaching the world, how are we doing? Sometimes I think we're doing really good. Sometimes I think we can do better. But how about you? How are you doing? Is your love and your commitment to the church family something that would amaze the world? Something that they would say, well, I I don't get it. (laughs) I can't explain it. And that Jesus would, would be the only explanation. That's, that's what I want it to be for me. That's, that's what I want it to look like for me. I know I'm not there. I want to get there. You know where this all starts? It starts by being together. I've, I've offered several words of praise that I've meant. Commendation. Good job. You're doing good this morning. And I've met them. And now I want to offer a challenge. An area that I think needs improvement. We are commanded in the New Testament to meet regularly with each other. In the early church, that meant daily. Daily, they made time for each other. We know that in this world, we desperately need regular fellowship with each other. In order to be faithful, in order to overcome the many challenges that are against us. And I know that some of you are not going to miss a Sunday. You're just not. If you can be here, you will be here. Let me talk to the others. Many of whom aren't here to hear me. Maybe they're listening online. Jesus wants you to be here. Satan wants to keep you from being here. First Thessalonians 2. Here's what Paul wrote. Brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul did, again and again. But Satan stopped us. Paul had an intense longing for fellowship with the brothers. I remember when we missed several weeks back in the COVID thing. Looking back, wish we would have just 
probably just kept on meeting every week. But we, we missed a few weeks. We thought it was the right thing to do. And I remember one of my kids saying, oh, I just miss, I miss being at church. Like, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. That's a longing that Paul had. And that's a longing that should be in your heart to be with the brothers. If it's missing, there's something wrong. See, Paul had a true understanding of Jesus' vision for the church. None of those things could, could keep Paul away, the things that keep us away. Do you think that Paul's soccer game, kid's soccer game, would have kept him from meeting with the brothers? I don't know. That's hard for me to imagine. Do you think Paul ever just woke up and said, you know, I don't feel like coming today? Every now and then somebody will admit that to me. And I got a call and say, hey, I haven't seen you in a little while. Where were you Sunday? And they'll say, ah, if I'm honest, I, uh, I just woke up and didn't feel like coming. Okay. I actually really appreciate the honesty. That's good. That's a good start. It's not acceptable. It's not. Can you picture Paul doing that? The average attendance for a member of Aletheia, a member, average member. You want to guess? Don't guess. The average attendance is two out of three. So I... I look through every week, and I've got about 82 families and roughly 27, 28 missing on a given Sunday. Now, some people are here every Sunday, and other people are really dragging down the average. I don't know where you are. Two out of three. And folks... You know, when Paul said, you know, on this matter, I don't really have a word from the Lord. <laughs> this is this is me. OK, I'm going to do that now. I don't have a word from the Lord. I don't know. What's the right number? What, like how many should you be able to miss in a year? Oh, that's the wrong question. It isn't. How many do I get to miss? Isn't that the wrong question? Is that the wrong question, Mike? <laughs> That's not the right question. We ask that question about school. How many can I miss and still get an A? Can you picture Paul being gone 17 Sundays out of a year? Can you picture that? Well, that was Paul. I'm not aiming to be Paul. Why not? Why not? Think he was missing something? His joy wasn't complete? I don't think, I think 17 Sundays out of a year is too many when we only meet once a week. And, and this, my experience, again, this is, Sean, I'm not saying this is from the Lord. My experience was when I grew up, we were at church. I do not, I don't remember ever missing when we didn't absolutely have to. And parents, when you send your kids off to college, are they going to be involved in the church? When I went off to college all four years, I, I, I don't remember ever missing a Sunday that I didn't absolutely have to. I had a church in college. None of my friends went to it. It was a church that I wanted to be committed to. It was the example that my parents set for me. And it's the example that parents should be setting for their children in this church. I believe that. Yes, sometimes you're going to miss. If you're sick... Don't come in here and sneeze on the snacks, okay? You stay at home and sneeze on your own snacks. But if, if you've got, you got a good excuse, I, I get it. I get it. Sometimes spouses should get away. Maybe that can only happen on a weekend. Go on, go on a weekend with your spouse. That's a good thing, okay? And you don't have to come to me. Uh, some of you do. I always appreciate that if you say, hey, I'm going to be gone. Boy, that's really considerate, and I appreciate that. You, but you don't have to. Make a commitment. We are going to set the example for our children. And if I look, and, and I don't have, when, when Paul says he has this intense longing, that's like foreign language. I don't get that. I don't have an intense longing. Better ask God to put that in you. Because it should be there. 
in all these things, God can and will help us. But we have to show up. We have to show up. I want to read for you. We're going to kind of close here in a second. I'm wrapping this up. I want to read for you the Apology of Aristides. Sorry, Aristides. He was a philosopher, and he wrote a letter to Emperor Hadrian. And now, don't get ahead just yet. My understanding, as I've done some reading, is that he was actually commissioned by the emperor to try to figure out what was going on with these Christians. This was a philosopher, pagan philosopher, and go, go figure out what's going on with these Christians, and then let me know. I want to know what's, what's happening with them. So this, this is not written about the church in America, as you're going to see very soon. Aristides reports to the king, The Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learned from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they received commandments, which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man and whatsoever they would not that others should not do unto them. They do not do to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat for they are pure. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies And their women, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest, and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense in the world and to come in the other world. Further, here's where we're getting into their relationships. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen or bondwomen, be slaves, or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falseness, falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has, gives to him who has not, without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world... Each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly, as the Lord their God commanded them. Aristides became a Christian. With that kind of witness, how could he resist? That was written around... 125, early 2nd century, later in the 2nd century, 
Tertullian wrote that the pagans marveled at Christians and said of them, see how they love each other. That was their witness to their pagan neighbors, the love they had for each other. Would our neighbors say that of us today, that they've never seen such a love as this? I pray that we resist American Christianity. I pray that we embrace a biblical Christianity and with it Jesus' vision for us, his called out people, the new community of God. May we each humbly, increasingly conform to what God has given us a vision for his church, relationships that can only be explained by Jesus. We're going to close in song, but I want to read to you from Hebrews 10. It reads, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching.